Good morning from Zurich. You're listening to Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Coming up on today's program, right here from Dufostrasse 90, right here in Zurich, of course, my guests today, Juliet Lindley and Marcus Schugel. They've got their views on the week's biggest stories. Juliet is here, fresh from the mountains. Buon anno. Buon anno. Buongiorno. Tell me, what have, what have you found for us? Did you find something on the way back from Cortina, or are we going farther afield? Well, we do need to talk about Cortina versus St. Moritz at Christmas. You'll be giving me your side, I'll be giving you mine. And then, of course, I can't can't not mention what next at the Vatican. The Pope Emeritus is buried, but what happens next? Another papal resignation, infighting, stay tuned. Very good. Also, our editor-in-chief, Andrew Tuck, will bring us the latest from London, and we'll also be getting the latest from the Bosporus as well. I'm Hannah Lucinda-Smith, Monocle's Istanbul correspondent, and I'll be bringing you all the latest news from Turkey. It's the 8th of January, 2023, live from Zurich. This is Monocle on Sunday. And good morning from a rather was sort of a, a sunny Zurich uh, for a moment, uh, but now it's raining. Um, and uh, of course, the forecast has come good. But anyway, uh, Happy New Year, uh, listeners. And it is 2023. We almost had a bit of a, a stuff up on the intro of the program because um, it was a cut and paste and it did say 2022. But we saved that. It is 2023. Schools are going to be back in their groove, at least in this part of Switzerland tomorrow. Uh, Juliet uh, Lindley is here. Also, uh, Marco Schugel is also here. Uh, good morning to both of you. Nice to see you. Looking fresh-faced. I can barely see you. We should probably sort of set up a very different type of program today because I don't know if we sound different, but we're seated. We're seated. This is very, the listeners, this is very different. When the program comes from Midori House, when you've been listening to Emma Nelson right now, I believe she's, uh, she has been sitting because we sit in London uh, to do the programs. But Zurich is always a stand-up affair. Uh, but we have a, hydro- a hydraulic desk. Um, someone um, in the company broke it over the holidays. We won't name who it was. Uh, Desi uh, but no- knows who that is. She was pointing the fingers. Uh, there was a bit of a whistleblowing moment before we went on air. But here we are. Anyway, good morning, everyone. Juliette, good morning. Good morning. Good morning. It's good to be here. A bit strange to be seated, but hey. Yeah, that's fine. Marcus, how are you feeling about it? New Year and, and being seated as well. <laughs> Heavy comfortably. And it's exactly how I felt alone the holidays. So very in comfort and um, very relaxed. Okay. So on, on the on the relaxed one, I was saying at least, uh, well, mo- most schools are going back. Uh, also same for um, St. Gallen. And of course, I should say to our listeners, uh, for those who are not that regular, maybe you're joining in for the first time. Uh, Marcus Schugel, you're the Associate Professor at St. Gallen University in the Institute for Marketing, where I was actually speaking uh, exactly. a little bit earlier, not, a little yeah. late, late in last year anyway. Uh, we will, we'll come back to that, <laughs> of course. No, we're starting with the semester, in fact, uh, by mid of February. So we got a little bit of quiet time right now, preparing for the semester, um, starting our corporate projects and looking a lot into research and having sort of a January that is always, yeah, preparatory at our at our site. Indeed. Which uh, is really good to prepare and have time to think a bit. Before we went on air, we were talking about a couple of marketing and brand themes that we're going to be unpacking uh, in in a moment. Uh, Juliet, you were, <clears throat> pardon me, you're up in Cortina. Uh, you said it was amazing skiing conditions. So we've had all of this, these tales of woe from all over Europe. Of course, uh, news outlets everywhere, uh, photos of green slopes in Switzerland and Austria, but not the case in Cortina. No, I wouldn't say amazing skiing, but solid skiing. There were um, no snow areas to be seen, but they've got great cannons. What can I tell you? The snow cannons are out there day and night, and we skied the entire time with gorgeous, brilliant sunshine. And I know that you're very much a San Moritz fan. Allow me to just uh, mention for a brief moment how much we did enjoy Cortina. It's a bit of a cliche, you know. It's almost comical. They've made movies about 
Cortina at Christmas and there are always a bit of comedy shows making fun of the, the fur coats and everything. There aren't a lot of fur coats nowadays. But the cute, I don't believe that for one. I don't believe no, that for one. It's Italy. No, I, it's forget. fake. And you would never so, know the difference. That's This is true. <laughs> but it's the cues on piste, off piste, right. the traffic to get a hot chocolate at the best patisserie. You've got a queue to get a table at an in spot for a spritz or prosecco. You've got a queue. Not to mention if you didn't book a table for dinner back in October, forget. No, we this is true. This was a complete disaster up in the mountains. Same for you. But, anyway, but incredible but, though. But, but what? But it is charming. It is beautiful. As I was saying with Marcus, and Marcus agreed with me, you know, that pink rock, the facades that, that at sunset just. Oh, I thought pink on rock on your, on your fingernail. I mean, on your finger. No, no, did you? No, on your finger. No. Uh, no pink diamonds. Rocks. Yeah, pink. Whichever. We, we love all of them. But it is beautiful and it does have a lot of charm. And Marcus is smiling, agreeing with me. Marcus, did you do any alpine time as well this holiday? No, we skipped this this time because we had the chance of inviting a lot of people to our home from all around the world. We had visits from Singapore, from New York City, and we were in a three to two to three day rhythm. We had new guests, had new people coming in, and I was maybe majorly looking for the kitchen, and so I got my rest in doing turkey and all that other stuff. So it was really more relaxing. So you're running Schloss Schögel then, basically. It, it sounds like we call it the Goldauer Mansion. Yes, we're a little <laughs> bit more on the low, slower scale. <laughs> Very good. He did say it's a way to escape the guests, to just escape to the kitchen. Yeah, so well, it is. It, it is true. Chopping, people, yeah, sauteing. people have their uh, various shoots they want to. Uh, yeah, what do you es- do when you want down. to escape your guests? Yeah, uh, well, I didn't have any guests, so uh. th- we were we were quite different. It was just it was mom. Uh, was was up in the mountains uh, this year, and we were. I'm not saying we were antisocial. We were out a lot, but we said this year we're not hosting New Year's uh, this year. We oh, thought, okay, let's see if someone invites. Did us. anyone invite? No, you? of course not. Oh, no, no, no. so it was you, Mom and Max. <laughs> yeah, which we've done before, which I'm a- absolutely fine with. Do you even go to sleep before midnight? Confess. Uh, no, we no, of course not. We 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 stay up. We're up until you your hand grenade. You know, this we also made a change as well because normally we. I don't know what you do for the the countdown. But actually, I like, you know, because we're in the world of radio, we're in the world of broadcasting, we like things to the second. Mm. And so normally we're watching, we're, whether it's on ZDF or ARD, we're watching Brandenburg Gate and the fireworks and whatever's happening there. This year we went to France. This year we decided to do France no. 2. Yeah, oui, c'est super. And it was, it, was, um, it was good. I mean, and I have to say the French do put on a better spectacle than than the Germans. I'm sorry I'm sorry Marcus but you're absolutely right. Being in Berlin right on, on New Year's Eve you don't want to be there with those streets fights that they're getting wrong. Well no so, I was gonna say where where were the fireworks that, yes. that we were seeing and maybe we'll be uh, we'll be talking about this a little bit uh, more on the program as well. I believe Andrew Tuck um, is in London, back in London because he he managed managed to scamper over this way very, very quickly uh, this week as well. Uh, good morning Andrew. Uh, good morning, Tyler. And yes, uh, made it back from two very nice days uh, in Zurich with you and the team, getting the agenda ready for 2023. And uh, looking at my notes this morning, slightly horrified about the m- number of things I've promised I'm going to do over the next couple of days. But here we go. Well, were those those were your notes? Did you see the email that I wrote last night? Yeah, don't worry. I've, I've already okay, good. I, that, that came at a, a kind of crucial moment. I had a glass in my hand. I thought, oh, I better go home. Oh, good. <laughs> I, I, had, I, had about th- I had about three glasses by the time I, I wrote that anyway. So um, ha- happy, happy digesting uh, that uh, as well. Andrew, uh, well, maybe bring us, bring us up to speed as well. Of course, people who read uh, the Monocle Weekend Edition, uh, they've been able to follow you uh, all the way down uh, to Palma and back again. Were there any details that you left out of your column and, and any, any, any other, because well, I think you did share an extra, a few extra delights uh, with your colleagues when you were over here uh, in terms of uh, what it means to, to board a boat, travel with a dog, uh, zip up and down uh, France uh, and, and make your way, of course, back to London. 
Well, I'm a big advocate of it now. We did it once in the summer. So uh, for people who don't know, I have a, a very tiny outpost that it belongs to, to me and my partner now in Palmer de Mallorca. But with a dog, it's very complicated to travel from the UK. You have to put a dog in the hold. You can't take dogs inside a plane from the, from the UK unless it's a, a private jet, which unfortunately I don't quite have yet. So we decided... Wait for that actually, bonus, Andrew. Wait for that bonus. <laughs> <laughs> so we decided, okay, let's see what it's like in the winter. And I was a bit cautious because... People said, oh, well, maybe the sea will be rough and, you know, it's, it's, it, what if it's raining all the way? But we left on that, I think it was the Saturday just before Christmas. It was crisp and cold here. It was minus three when we got in the car. And as you drive south through France, you know, the temperatures tick up a degree and a degree and a degree. And by the time we got to Mallorca, it was, it was 20 degrees during the day. And it's great traveling with a dog. You know, we, it's an eight-hour car ferry from um, Barcelona to uh, Parma. We hit Barcelona just after Argentina had won the World Cup. So we went really, because we went a bit, a bit lost. We, we went right through the city with everyone honking their horns. Uh, we stopped in uh, Girona on the way down. Again, a city I'd never been to. So it was an adventure. And then you have to repeat it on the way back, which is, which is less fun because the, the destination is, is Folkestone and Calais. But anyway, it was a, an amazing adventure and great to be you know, fully with the dog over Christmas and not having to leave her with a dog sitter or anything like that. This is one surprise, though. It's it's not exactly, you think, okay, taking the car, ferries, all of these things. We think about travel, you know, maybe in the days of the 70s and 80s. Uh, but it's not exactly budget. <laughs> when you sort of, when you were saying that, you know, the cost of, of being able to, of course, uh, you know, take the channel uh, train across with the car, the boats, everything, uh, by the time you've obviously uh, paid road tolls, um, it's, it's, it's not a cheap exercise. No, so it, it costs, uh, I think it was like maybe £600 to take the car back and forth uh, and make sure we had, uh, uh, we had a speedy boarding thing effectively on the way back, plus dog. And then you pay all of the payage all the way down through France. Then the ferry, because we have a dog, you have to take a cabin that allows a dog in it and there's an additional charge for the dog and there's the car. But it, it, it did come to, I, I would guess, just under, I don't know, 16, 17, 100 euros all in just the, with petrol and things to go back and forth. So it's, it's quite a lot of money for two people, car and dog, but, but really worth it. And the, the, the strange thing is that ferry, that car ferry, I kind of love it. It's, it's, no, it's, not, a, it's not exactly got lots of thrills about it, but it's, when we got to the, the ferry in the summer, there were like 600 cars waiting to get on. In December, there were 40 cars waiting to get on but so many trucks. So we now know the routine that when you go to get your supper, there's just this huge car uh, lineup of like big guys with their little trays. And because everyone's so strict about not drinking, they have these little meal deals. And you see, you see these huge guys and they're like, oh, I'll have the jelly, please. <laughs> this is their pudding. And they're, it's, it's the Swedish bunch of guys. And when we sat around having dinner with them, so it's, 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 a, it's, a, bit, it's a bit functional, but it's, it's an amazing thing to do. We have uh, many, many stories uh, to, to catch up on. Of course, uh, Juliet, uh, you sort of missed your gig by sort of a week, but you're just saying now there is, uh, it gets exciting um, at, at the Vatican at the moment. But of course, uh, Juliet's a former Vatican correspondent. Uh, and uh, I'm sure you were obviously glued to, to the television uh, and, and your phone, uh, obviously, um, in, in the run up, of course, to um, the announcement of, uh, of the former Pope's uh, death. Um, but maybe you can tell us what, what's happening at the Vatican right now. That's such a good question. There Isn't are no it? longer two Popes <laughs> after nearly a decade of this pontifical duality. And of course, chins are a wagging. So some are saying that with the death of this ultra-conservative Pope Emeritus, right-wing Catholics are now adrift. They've lost their hero. 
Others are saying the kid gloves are now kid gloves are now off. Ratzinger is no longer there as a mitigating force. So criticism of Pope Francis, whom the Conservatives view as far too liberal, progressive, and even anti-establishment, will escalate. And of course, bitter internal strife in the church lies ahead. Well, firstly, let's say ultra-conservative Catholics are definitely not astray. There was a strong movement before, and there will be one after Ratzinger, who is now gone. And even if he's dead, as one senior Vatican official put it, the only difference now is that instead of praying for Benedict, those conservatives will pray to him. So his death doesn't diminish his potency as a point of reference for the anti-Francis forces. But those same conservatives will now no longer hold fire in their attacks on Pope Francis. Well, it's not like they were silent in their attacks on the progressive Pope while Benedict was alive. So throughout Fran- Francis's papacy, since 2013, when Ratzinger stepped down, we've seen the Argentinian accused of all sorts of things, including being an avowed communist, a heretic, even uh, a dictator pope. So it's hard to imagine there's even more toxic ammunition out there, Tyler, and that the anti-Francis brigade have been holding fire. But just bear in mind for a second that, yes, on Twitter, you'll find all sorts of public utterances against the current pope, but in the global scheme of things, those Catholics that make up the majority of the planet's 1.3 billion uh, faithful. They have other things on their mind. Mm, I, so I, I'm curious what, what, what your thought is. I want to bring Marcus in on this uh, from a brand perspective as well. But Juliet, first, uh, if you sort of had to give a rating for where uh, you know Catholicism Inc. is today, is it a, is it a is it a seven point five? Is it a six point one? In whose eyes? Well, no, maybe your your eyes as a as a Vatican. In my eyes, it's yeah. higher now than it, it was under Benedict. Globally. Punto. Punto. But if you go and ask all the ultra-conservatives in America, they'll say they're zero. Francis is at zero. And they need a new conservative pope when Francis, hopefully, as they say, resigns or dies. Of course. Marcus, thoughts on, uh, yeah, the the Catholic uh, establishment, of course, with this obviously passing of of this pope as well, of course, uh, German uh, as as well. Uh, And yeah, I guess, you know, know, and again, as an educator, as as an academic, also someone whose, you know, gig is is marketing and brand and was Catholic, Catholic. maybe. Uh, Yeah. How do you how do you sort of rate things at the moment? Now, the normal answer of a politician comes on. Let me put first one thing, and that is uh, when you look at the history of the Catholic Church and the ideas of of branding and building an identity, there's nobody else that you can copy better from than the than the Catholic Church. I think for the last two thousand years, it's prevailing. It's standing for for their identity. They're strongly right now. From when you look at it from the academic point of view of a brand management, they're in the struggle that their brand identity doesn't really fit to the environment, mm. to the context, and um, the, the admittance of, of of challenges that you need to take and to the openness that you need to open up for 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 the outside in perspective. I think that's the challenge for the Catholic Church Church to move forward. But uh, it's hard to tell this from the outside. I think the most, most biggest challenge is that they need to understand that the the world is still changing. And it's maybe changing faster because the options, what you believe in, are bigger than 1,000 years ago. Mm -hmm. So the options for for mankind to believe in certain things is getting bigger. And traditionalists, yes, they will prevail. But on the other hand... Yeah, it's it's proliferating and it's it's coming up of new ideas everywhere, and so being the one choice for for the one that you've been put to, I don't know that if this struggle is going to be very positive. It's always turning into negative, and it's always never going to be like that. You can say that you're pushing forward in a positive. You're always in the defense. So, 
Andrew, I want to um, go to the front pages uh, of uh, all of the Sunday papers. Juliet is, is smiling here because she knows obviously what's on the front pages. But I want to <laughs> I want to park it because for a moment because uh, we we have Marcus. We can we can and I think everyone knows what story we're going to be talking about um, as well. But I think because we have the news in uh, a, well about nine minutes time, we're not going to get through it. So we're going to go to other stories. Andrew, what else is making news uh, in the UK without addressing the, uh, the, the the rather large elephant? In the room. Well, there's that story, and, and and the other story, which I don't know if you want to dive in too deeply, is just like this this absolute standoff over industrial relations here in the UK, which uh, we see it elsewhere in the world, but we have strike after strike. The, yesterday was the the last in the, in the current series of, of rail strikes. So the 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 the, 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 the train system, the logistics of getting around this country are, are terribly broken, which has been a real spoking trying to get people back to work even after covid so it's another reason for people not to have returned to work in this first week in fact the government did put out a, a, a warning saying unless you really need to travel you know don't travel so we've been back in this cycle uh, i'm waiting for a parcel for example to be delivered you know i got an email yesterday from the royal mail saying um, we don't know when this will be delivered because of the current industrial situation uh, the the healthcare system is is hit by strikes now it's not just strikes you know there has been underinvestment there are, there are genuine issues and it's not only about pay but it's a real pivoting point because you know the rishi sunak has, has kind of tried to say that by the end of the year most of this will ease and go away i think he's just betting on the on the fact that globally it looks like inflation will will halve across the year but he's in a very tricky situation because on the right of his party as many of the papers report today there have been meetings again with Boris Johnson. There was a, a, an event just this, in the last couple of days where many people were championing his return to power at some point. And also on the right, that many people just don't think that Rishi Sunak is up for delivering Brexit. Now, what that means is they want to see this kind of bonfire of regulation, which actually I think when everyone talks about it, it sounds so simple. And then when you get to look at it, you realise that these, these pieces of you know, legislation protect the British public all sorts of different ways so it's just been impossible to do and of course then there's the brexit debate again the papers this morning saying it's the one thing that keir starmer himself can't talk about because he's scared of talking about the issue so the the the, the, the political situation in this country is poor industrial relations are terrible and actually i think it's it, not that people support strikes and want strikes to go on but there is, is oddly a little bit more kind of empathy for the people on strike this time than in the past because i think many families find themselves in impoverished situations and are unsure about you know what lies ahead for them so they're intrigued to see who wins in this in this tussle Andrew, it's it's fascinating when you talk about Rishi Sunak saying that you know this will be you know hopefully resolved by by the end of the year. It's not like he's saying it on December fifteenth and it's going to be gone in two weeks. This is something which is is that that the UK uh, is going to be to be living with for 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 many many months because also as we've seen there is a contagious nature to all of this as well. Certainly, and you know he's also which. On one hand, you can see why he, he wants to do it, but it seems to be a provocation, which is that he wants to bring in this legislation, which says that for key 
key services like such as the, the railways for example there has to be a minimum service so that you can't um you 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 can't just cancel all trains mm. now that seems fair enough because you know, people need to get around the country there's emergency things that need to happen but I, I i just i just don't see how that will actually change anything and it's going to be so difficult to get through and there'll be loopholes and, and ways of doing things the trade unions congress meets this week there's fears that with all the unions together in one room they may be able to kind of bring together about something that looks more like a a national um strike for all industries so it's it's pretty tough but what they are betting on is just that inflation will go down and with that you know that people's mortgage rates will go back down that the cost of living will seem to be less of a, an issue every day, that food prices may ease. But people don't feel that at the moment. And I think people are certainly cautious about the way that the economy is going, whoever you are, at whatever level of society. And I just want to bring Julia in. Julia, you've got a story here um, as well about uh, the NGOs in Italy mm. uh, not uh, particularly happy uh, with, uh, with Georgia Maloney's government, but certainly also uh, when it comes to, uh, to, to migrant rules. Yes, indeed. I mean, nearly two dozen NGOs and charities have slammed the new rules that, that Meloni's government has put in regarding uh, what happens when, you, when a vessel rescues the migrants. So the new decree says that th as soon as they've got on board a migrant, they've got to head straight to a port as opposed to carrying out multiple rescues. So Médecins Sans Frontières is saying that contravenes international maritime, human rights and European law, and it'll inevitably lead to more losses of life. Now, Meloni's new government made a big point of vowing to stop charity vessels from performing what it considers to be a ferry service from North Africa to Italian shorts. And it's delivering on its promise, if mm. you will. Um, Marcus, just we were um, making a little bit of light about the, 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 the fireworks, uh, of course, at, at Brandenburg Gate. But you know, we're, we're one week on uh, from, and, and I think maybe you know, many, many listeners might have missed it because it's, this has been a bit of a, def becoming a defining story. Um, in certainly in the German press and the continental press, which of course was this this massive you know flare up uh, and and what we saw last last week was fire trucks ambulances being attacked uh, in in Neukölln in other other districts um, in Berlin. Now this could have been one of these things which yeah would have been gone by by Monday or Tuesday, but but it's it's a story that seems to be spreading. It's here in the Swiss press now. A lot of people sort of have again because uh, there, then there's there's many other things that have that have developed around as well. Can't we call it what it is? There's a whole, you know, discussion about uh, how do we label these things as well, and and of, of course an overall, you know, migration discussion, uh, you know, and and uh, the the ARD being accused of uh, kind of not cooking the books, but uh, but trying to somehow mitigate the situation, but not actually calling it like like it is. And and I'm wondering, it's it's. Because we've seen, I guess, in the past as well, we would think back to Cologne uh, many years ago, where, of course, the media was really slammed for, for not sort of dealing with these issues of women being groped, etc. Is this also a bit of a turning point now as well, that, the, you know, at start of the new year, migration is always a topic in Germany, but it, yes. it hasn't gone away now. Uh, I think several things come together again. And, and the one thing that you always keep, need to keep in mind, since my youth times in Berlin, uh, we had those street fights in a little form. And, and it was much, much, much more uh, con, more friendly idea of shooting a rocket. Smaller firecrackers. Yeah, yeah <laughs> smaller firecrackers, less amount of firecrackers. And you, I, 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 I'm trying so hard not to put it into one dimension because it's the one dimension. It is was the first was the first New Year's Eve where you couldn't shoot those fireworks again in Germany, which is a huge thing for many people. 
we can discuss this if this is right and you need to forbid this. I don't think it's about forbidding. It's about really being able to use them properly. Second thing I think is, of course, um, everybody is surprised that Berlin is a, is a city that is kept alive by migrants. And in many spaces, when you go to Neukölln, when you go to Kreuzberg, when you go everywhere, you will find a lot of migrants that are already much more integrated than you could think of. We're the second biggest city in, besides from Turkey with, with Turkish people. So, and this is for decades. So the idea of putting always this migrant stuff, and this is for me the third point, the elections are coming up. We, they need to do the re redo the election from um, from two, two years ago in February. And so everybody's putting in their, their political firearms. Everybody's putting it up and, and pushing it. But to be honest, it is a topic that you need to tackle on how you want to get along with a, with a, with a society that's more multicultural and more separated then the, many have been thinking about the media from the media so being more objective I think would be one thing I don't think it's proper that you put it like you're idiots if you don't see that migration causes problems like some newspapers did last week this is much too this is not the right way of dealing with it the mm. idea might, must be that we understand how we can a better, get a better integration going get a better idea of how to live together but these are all topics that are just popping up at the tip of the iceberg with the those, I would say, New Year's Eve um, fights that we had in Wedding in Nukur. Mm. Andrew, just uh, before we, we head back to the news, uh, we, we've uh, been looking at, uh, of course, upcoming March issue. Uh, you had an idea as well, a little bit also just the, the frank discussion that need to be happened, but maybe um, casting a bit of a, of a glance or, or at least sort of putting a bit of a lens of common sense on things as well, which also means calling things as as they are. Uh, how do we have more clear communications? Um, and this is sort of one of, of, of many things that we're looking at cooking up uh, for March issue and beyond. Yes, we're looking at this, this common sense manifesto and maybe maybe a bit of common sense would, would have not left you, for example, at the end of the year with a huge NFT collection wondering where you're going to get rid, <laughs> going to get rid of it. So we're going to look at some of the amusing things about common sense. But we're also going to look at the mobility question and about the future of electric. And it was interesting. I, I met somebody yesterday who um, has been working for Tesla and I was quizzing him on you know, the, 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 the greenness of the electric car. And he said, well, the, the strange thing is that all those rare earth minerals you see in our cars they're excavated by the worst trucks in the world using diesel in the middle of uh, africa so he said you know that the idea that you purchase an electric car and you're somehow doing good for the environment should be uh, should be taken with a pinch of salt and this is somebody who actually works with the company so uh, Andrew, um, just stick around because we are going to deal with that, that bigger story, which of course is on all front pages. Uh, Juliet is very, very excited about all of this. Uh, but before that, Emma Nelson uh, is back in London with the news. Thank you very much indeed, Tyler. China is bracing for a huge increase of travellers as the world's largest annual migration of people takes place this month for the Chinese Lunar New Year. Over the last month, China has seen the dismantling of its zero COVID regime and a spike in coronavirus cases is expected. Reuters is reporting that two thermal power plants in the Russian-controlled part of Ukraine's Donetsk region have been damaged in a rocket attack by the Ukrainian army. And an air passenger has accused United Airlines of lying about what happened to her luggage after it went missing. Valerie Sibala was reassured by the airline that her suitcase was at Ronald Reagan Washington National Airport and would be delivered to her home. But Ms Sibala, who is an intelligence analyst in Washington, D.C., had installed a tracker in her case and was 
able to monitor her suitcase as over three days it went to a trip to somebody's apartment, it went to McDonald's and then went to a shopping centre. Back to you, Tyler. Emma, um, <laughs> this raises many questions like the python and the luggage as well. Um, so we, 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 so, we sort of wonder whether she uh, was, was actually working for a, a government agency or, or whether she's just a, a, a consultant. I wonder whether the, the suitcase was making a break for it. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I, it reminds me of me not to check because I'm going to be going through that airport I was on, about to uh, on, say, on, on Wednesday. There is a reason why I wrote that, which was, Tyler, just beware of, what, uh, of where you're sending your suitcase. It, Hand baggage only, it, right? Exactly, exactly. Uh, okay, so we were saying just a little bit before, well, early, yeah. earlier uh, in the front part of the hour, hour Emma, stick around uh, as, as well for this because everyone's going to want, want to pile in. We've seen stories, I think it was in the Times or maybe it could have, yeah, I think it was the Times today, um, which talks about, you know, we have Brexit, but uh, but really, there's the whole Mexit issue as well. Is the, is this sort of a fundamental turning point uh, when it comes to dividing families uh, and uh, and 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 much more? Uh, but I want to get everyone's uh, view on this. Maybe Emma, I'll start with you though. If you look at the papers today, um, uh, I, I mean, it's amazing if you look at the Daily Mail, for example. I mean, it seems that. <laughs> dominates 80% of of certainly what they have um, uh, in the paper digitally. I've, of course, I've not seen a hard edition of the paper today. I, I love the fact that we're now all going at the Daily Mail nowadays. I mean, because because frankly, I, I'm i not, oh, dare I be the only person in the world who doesn't really care? <laughs> that I just right. let them let them go and fight behind closed doors, let them do what they need to do, and just let me get on with what I've got to get on with. I think I've got friends who have siblings who said, at what point has a sibling not tried to nut the other in, during an argument? <laughs> mm. So it's, it's one of those things. Um, I just I would just would like them to just go and do what they need to do somewhere else and, and have what they, they, they need to do. I'm, I'm, I'm not remote. Can I just be the only person who's not interested in this? <laughs> okay, well, uh, no, no, I'm not sure if you're going to exit to, to go make yourself a coffee. I'm st- uh, stepping back from this. Stepping back from oh, the story. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll go over to, uh, to, to Juliet. Uh, you must have been following this uh, from uh, from the Dolomites. I was switching between Vatican news on the funeral and oh spare us. Yeah. And yes, uh, Emma. Yes, I. I don't. I'm. I'm not with you on this one. You can't help but be fascinated by everything that's coming out. You've got to wonder who's actually going to go and buy the book because everything's been leaked by now. So honestly, no one is actually going to go and get it. But you've got to wonder. Harry seems to be digging himself into an ever deeper hole. Um, his image is is uh, rock bottom, I think. Whereas apparently the kings and Prince Williams hasn't taken such a dent, according to popularity polls. But you are wondering about the battering of Brand Windsor, aren't mm. you? And I've got the best person here sitting next to me to tell what is going on with Brand Vin- Windsor and how can it be salvaged. Oh, and let's, let's think about a German connection again as well to all of this, but, but go, ahead. go ahead, Marcus. <laughs> no, basically, from my point of view, what is so, so, fun, so interesting about it is I would agree with everything that you've been saying about the importance and, and how the audience is taking up this new book and, and their new movie and their documentary. And I'm wondering how, how strong the brand of Windsor is right now, from my point of view, against these fights that are coming from the what I would call a brand extension, mm. which is Harry and Meghan, mm. that are trying to 
pull a lot of attention to themselves and trying to bring themselves into the game. And I see a little bit of a decoupling. People are getting aware that these two are not standing anymore for the winters. And I think this is one of the, the most important points that they need to acknowledge. They're not getting interesting just by blaming the others. You know, we call this then brand dilution if it would happen. But the times of brand dilution that were gone already. And from my point of view, they need to be aware that they are not building the strongest brand just by picking on somebody else. Mm. A- Andrew, uh, there's, there's, of course, so many aspects to this story, but uh, maybe we take a step back just to the publishing side um, of this. Of course, much news about this <laughs> this leaked uh, copy uh, as as if. Um, but, uh, but I think also you know, beyond that, is there a component of also, how does the publisher look in all of this uh, as well? Well, any publisher would have, uh, you know, would have bitten a hand off to get this book. It's, it's, you know, it's j- just the publicity you've seen in recent days. And I, I agree that I don't know how, how, how it's going to um, turn into book sales because many of the people who are Harry and Meghan fans are, are much younger readers who may be interested in books but probably want to digest much of this material online or through through other mediums. So it, it may not be the biggest book sales, but it is undoubtedly you know, going to be a hot topic and a bestseller for 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 many weeks to come but it, as you as you say it's it's is just a, a very and also there's there's so much other media wrapped around it you know we have the spotify deal we have the netflix deal and the funny thing is you know that you don't quite know what the strategy is because at what point do they turn from endlessly blaming every other person and there's not been one moment in any of this discourse over the recent uh, days where they have said but to be honest of course that we 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 were wrong here or actually on reflection we could have been a little bit more helpful here or maybe that wasn't the wisest thing to do there is no there's no self-awareness at all through any of this and I think you know, the, you know, there's lots of things picked over in the papers today, but I think one of the interesting topics is, you know, is you know, therapy is very good for many people, but it, therapy can, in some instances, lead you to a situation where you have great self-awareness of, you know, of how the world has treated you, but you don't understand how you re-engage with it. And I think that's a little bit of the problem with, with, with what you hear from Harry, is there is an endless empathy for himself, an endless understanding of all of his woes and and how badly he's done by but none absolutely none for anybody around him other than his wife so it's 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 a it's a bit brutal and there's a, another a story this morning that after the, the the duke of edinburgh's funeral the the two princes met with um prince charles as well and they were trying to kind of talk about the the, the oprah interview and of course, you know, Harry presents it as, you know, my brother lunged at me. But then you read the story and he, even he says, my brother lunged at me, turned me around, hugged me, told me he loved me. And I told him it still wasn't enough. So it's, it's you, actually, I think actually for Brown Windsor that actually what will happen over the coming days is William's going to come out of this rather well. Yes, they had a tussle, but it's out of passion and out of, out of love. It doesn't seem to be out of malice. And so I think that it's, it's, it's backfired. And as you say, for the media story, what happens in six months' time, a year's time, can you still be hawking this story around? Because mm. it hasn't hit in the way that they anticipated. 
Well, Andrew, Andrew, you also talked about it, Mark's bringing in a second, but you also talked about the timing of this when we were going into Christmas um, as well. And of course, this was around the Netflix series. It's like, okay, cho- choose your moment. But strikes, uh, inflation, uh, a, a very, very cold uh, November, uh, the impact on heating, all of these different things, they didn't get quite get the moment right. And and of course, this is also dragging on. We're, we're in a new year. So, and that's maybe, I, I'm also just thinking from a sort of a psychological perspective on the side of the potential consumer of this book, the moment's still not right because I think people move into a new year, they want a bit of a reset. There is no reset. We, we have the same, actually, the story's even uglier than, than it was before. Yeah, and I think the, 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 the bit that Harry misses, which is something I tried to write a little bit about before Christmas, is you know, that the British public have, and I think the public around the world, have this, and it's, it's unfathomable, you can't quite explain it. You, know, you can have the royal family in the moment, for example, of the Queen's funeral, where the pomp and pageantry takes on ever greater meaning, that the institution seems as robust as it ever has been. And then a few weeks later, you can have this really tawdry kind of like celeb mag kind of bust up going on across the pages with just one side being told and you'd think that you're you're right you'd think that that would shake the you know the 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 very foundations of of the Windsor family but I don't think it does but I think you know if you look back at you know someone like Edward the seventh you know his his mistresses his gallivanting his cigar smoking his boozing his betting were all part of the brand as well he knew how to be emperor king and then he could be this kind of crazy womanizer the next minute and the british public worked their heads around that they did it with diana they did it with charles after he gave his interview to dimbleby famously talking about the, the his, his unfaithfulness to diana we've 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 danced around this enough times before after the death of diana was the only time i think that the british monarchy faced any real questions and at the moment i just don't see it we're used to it we understand that we understand that it's both entertainment and also alternately when we need it there it's this this kind of this bedrock of belief in the nation you're about to, we're about to close this story down, at least for this program, but not for good. Marcus, I just want to bring you in. I mean, you, you can cook up, the, let's call this, in a way, this is a campaign. This is a campaign being waged, and I think it's interesting yeah. how you refer to them as, as a brand extension, yeah. but it needs timing. You, know, you, can, you can dream up the best campaign in the world, but if you don't hit the, the timing right, you know, you're yeah. going to lose people. And, and I think we always talk about the big bang that you need to get the, to get the attention of the, of the audience, and I think they bang too much right now. They didn't really, how should I say, seek it into into other events and I think they are they are running on a tight schedule to monetize to, to be honest and I think they want to get the best out of it and not get forgotten within forgotten in the next weeks and months and I think they're trying to play a game that audiences from my point of view at least and not in the, in the media publishing side but yeah you get a wear out effect if you're always talking about the same stuff you get exchangeable and if you're exchangeable you're nothing then you're not differentiated and then you might be getting out of the game earlier than you think mm. Juliet, are you going to um, maybe sort of dial down a little bit your, your your urge to go to the Daily Mail? No, no, no. It's my guilty pleasure. But I have to say, yes, overkill, overkill. This is way too much and far too much information. Do we really care about how he lost his virginity, honestly? And then they're digging out who and they're trying the to find a, they're, and also trying to find a Swiss angle this morning as well. You you, you saw that. Oh yeah, there, there's there, there, well, I, I, that that there was s- something happening in in up in Closters, whatever. Closters, right? Yeah, it could, could have could have been that. Gotta go read that, Andrew. What, what just <laughs> uh, just before we go, there is one question. Just going back to the Daily Mail, it is interesting because, of course, this has been you know one of the the best outlets, like it or not, for reporting on this. Kind of remarkable as well that the Daily Mail is free. Yeah, and. Uh, 
they are just dependent on getting advertising on their site, which they, they obviously get tons of. And they, you know, they have millions and millions and millions of people who, who log on to it. And, and I think it is many people's guilty pleasure. They are, they, you know, it's, but it's fascinating. You know, when I read this morning, like, even stories in the FT are repackaged and made fresh or, or they take something from the guardian and they they give it a spin a story that would never normally be in their realm and they manage to repackage it within minutes onto their site so it's 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 very clever what they do and they always have you know you know a headline that's a, the most shocking the most extraordinary you know unbelievable it, it, and it, it does lure people in so they they have a a recipe which has has worked around the world just um, for everyone, if um, people are sort of bored and you don't want to read that story, Andrew, go, go and you'll like this one, Juliet, as well. This is an exclusive story in the Daily Mail uh, this morning. No snow on the slopes, no problem, say Hollywood stars Salma Hayek and Natalie Portman. We'll go bungee jumping in Stad instead. Uh, but you have to go look at how they look in harnesses. And, and, and I'll just, I'll, I'll, <laughs> I'll leave it there. Um, Andrew Tuck, uh, have a good week. I'm sure we'll be, we'll be catching up uh, over, over the coming uh, days. It's uh, just gone 1043, almost 1044 here in Zurich. We're going away for a short break. When we come back, off to Istanbul. The Monaco Book of Entrepreneurs is a smart guide to starting and running your own business from the people behind Monocle Magazine. It's a handbook designed to encourage, inspire, and perhaps even gently prod its readers into taking the plunge and starting something for themselves. Inside, you'll find canny case studies of 100 businesses that succeeded, ideas on where to base your business, and advice from more than 50 industry experts on everything from finding funding to scaling up. There are ideas and opportunities for everyone from a first-timer with a dream to seasoned entrepreneurs mulling over their next venture. This isn't about getting rich quick, but it is for those interested in building something with integrity, making something that lasts, something you'd be proud to pass on to the next generation. Isn't it time you turn the page? Let's get started then. The Monocle Book of Entrepreneurs. Go to monocle.com forward slash shop and order your copy today. back with Monocle on Sunday with me, Tyler Brule. Uh, as I said, just going in to the break and at the start of the show uh, as well, we are going to be checking in now with our correspondent uh, in Istanbul, uh, Hannah Lucinda-Smith uh, is there. Uh, good morning. And uh, of course, uh, I should say Happy New Year as well. Happy New Year. Good morning. Uh, let's uh, let's start, uh, of course, uh, one story which has, uh, yes, been uh, with us uh, for a while now, of course, is our, all of all of the posturing, um, Anna, which which uh, goes, of course, uh, in, in a lineup to to uh, an election. And uh, we're now looking at uh, something uh, in, in high spring, um, you might say. And, and already there's there's been a bit of, you know, maneuvering. We're seeing what Ankara has has been been up to. Uh, but how do you see this uh, playing out uh, you know, especially across this first quarter of the year. Yeah, absolutely. Well, I mean, this is what is going to dominate Turkey in 2023 is the elections uh, that are coming up scheduled for the summer, looking like it's going to come in either April or May. But really, you know, it's, it's up to Erdogan to sort of make the best of the timing. He's kind of trying to juggle several balls here. Things aren't going well for him at all. His 
the polls are showing that, uh, you know, his popularity is at an all-time low, the lowest it's been in his 20 years in power. Uh, the economy is really in a crisis. Inflation is sky high. Um, you know, people are struggling even to kind of put meat on the dinner table. Um, but President Erdogan, of course, has a huge amount of power, and he's we're already seeing him kind of playing every uh, move that he can in order to play these elections to his advantage. So by bringing those elections forward a little bit, he might be able to just get there in time before the economy really collapses. You know, mainly what he's concerned about there, you know, he's, uh, the central bank has been burning through its reserves in order to keep the lira propped up. Um, and obviously that can't go on forever. So the, the elections need to happen before that. Um, but also what we started to see now uh, is the courts moving against potential rivals. So already the mayor of Istanbul, really popular figure called Ekrem Imamolu, was convicted in late December of insulting public officials. He's now probably going to be banned from politics. Also, uh, coming up this week, we've got uh, a hearing in a case against the HDP. That's the main Kurdish party. It's kind of mass trial of more than 400 of its deputies and members. Again, they could be banned from politics and it will basically shut down the party. So we're starting to see all these kind of manoeuvrings, you know, Erdogan pulling all the levers that he's got at his hands to make sure that the elections go his way. Just uh, uh, tell us uh, if we just uh, maybe look, look south of the border, if we look towards um, Syria and, and, and of course, uh, a, a softening of, of, of relations, but obviously very much a strategic role that, uh, that, that of course, Ankara you know, can play with, uh, with Damascus. But behind all of that, Hannah, is, is this really about, you know, ultimately not about you know, brokering and, and diplomacy? Is this about big Turkish contracts for, of course, what is going to have to be a massive infrastructure rebuild for the country? I mean, much of it, which is already underway. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's one one area where Turkey can clearly benefit. I mean, it's a neighbouring country. There's swathes of Syria utterly destroyed. And of course, the Turkish construction sector, thanks to its links with President Erdogan, uh, you, is very strong already and, and ready to jump in there. Um, but also, again, I mean, coming back to the elections, one of the major issues for Turkish people at the moment are Syrian refugees. There are officially 3.6 million Syrians in Turkey overwhelmingly the opinion polls show Turkish people are really, really unhappy about it. They want uh, to see Syrian refugees start to return to Syria. And every party on every part of the political spectrum has turned this into a manifesto issue. Um, and the, you know, Erdogan, by you know, moving towards a reconciliation with Damascus, he can project this image that he's the leader who's going to be able to kind of clear up the whole Syrian mess, a decade of conflict, a decade of, uh, you know, really tense relations and neighbor and you know somehow send Syrian refugees home of course it's not as simple as that even if Erdogan was to you know make up with Assad tomorrow you know, how are you going to persuade those 3.6 million people to go back to a country that's in ruins that still has this regime in place which uh, you know almost all of them in Turkey are uh, really opposed to but it's all about the perception you know if, if Erdogan manages to get a kind of photo opportunity with Assad um, it's going to create this perception that you know he's you know, moving Turkey in this direction. Just uh, maybe from an observational point of view, we were talking a little bit earlier um, about this whole notion of of, of integration, uh, and this was, of course, through through the German lens and everything that's been happening in in, in Berlin. Obviously, not a new story, but when you look at, uh, of course, you know, Syrians in Turkey, 
do you have any sort of it just maybe shine a spotlight for us on on integration there what does that look like obviously you're, you're talking about millions and millions of, of, of refugees but do you also see a normalization and is is there even a path to naturalization I guess probably economically uh, if, if uh, probably you have um, the means I would imagine you can you can naturalize uh, at speed or, or not but um, how divisive is the situation yeah, well, I mean, this is really one of the major problems. You know, Turkey was, you know, praised, I think, quite rightly in, in some sense in the early years of the Syrian war for sort of opening its borders and being, you know, quite welcoming, certainly compared to places like Lebanon and Jordan, um, to the Syrian refugees. You know, they didn't force the Syrians to live in camps. They were allowed to sort of live in the cities. Um, but on the other hand, there has been very little attempt from the government to properly integrate Syrians. So while, for example, you know, the Syrian children can attend Turkish schools and, you know, they uh, they can use Turkish health services, all this has done really is to build resentment from Turkish people. Um, and meanwhile, there's been kind of very little, uh, you know, effort from the government to you know, help those Syrians, you know, learn Turkish, a completely different language to Arabic, um, you know, to, to really kind of, you know, integrate into the community properly, culturally. You know, I think something that a lot of people might not realise is that even though Turkey and Syria are neighboring countries and they're both obviously muslim countries actually culturally they're very very different so it's been quite hard i think for a lot of those syrians in turkey to really integrate and of course you know as is natural generally they're all kind of living in the same areas so living in cities along the syrian border living in certain neighborhoods of istanbul and again you know this is something um, that really contributes to uh to you know turkish dissatisfaction there are some syrians who have received uh, Turkish citizenship, it's a very small number. It's in the sort of hundreds of thousands rather than the millions. It seems to be pretty arbitrary how the Turkish government is deciding that. You know, anecdotally, I have some friends who are, you know, highly qualified, highly educated, speak very good Turkish and have been denied. On the other hand, you hear about other people who speak no Turkish and you can't really, you know, understand the reason why they might have been given that citizenship. And again, that's another thing that Turkish people are really not happy about. So, yeah, I mean, I think, you know, long term, there are problems storing up. There are a huge amount of Syrian children not in school, often working illegally, you know, working in particularly in the textile sector and in, in kind of sweatshops in Istanbul. Um, and, you know, it's not a sustainable situation. Just to, before we go, uh, we had, of course, Epiphany on on Friday. Uh, what does that mean uh, for uh, the the Orthodox uh, community and uh, certainly in and around Istanbul? Yeah, so I think you know, something that maybe not many people realise is that, you know, Istanbul is the seat of the Greek Orthodox Church. The Patriarch of Constantinople is still based in Istanbul or, or Constantinople, as the Greeks call it. Um, and Epiphany in, is celebrated in Istanbul widely. In the way that they do it, you have uh, various priests, including the Patriarch, at various points along uh, the edge of the Bosphorus, throwing a cross into the water, uh, and then uh, Greek Orthodox men will dive into those icy waters to chase it. Uh, and it's quite a spectacle every year. So, yeah, this was on Friday. Uh, it's meant to, the symbolism is to do with the, the kind of baptism of Jesus. But it's, um, yeah, it's really one of the kind of more uh, sort of fun to watch uh, religious celebrations here in Istanbul. I was going to say a bit of a tourism, a tourism draw. And it is interesting, just before we go, but when we look at sort of the run-up to the election, just the sheer amount of promotion that uh, that Turkey is is doing um, as well. And I'm not sure 
if this makes you know, uh, you know, obviously we know that uh, ha- having sort of a dissenting voice is very difficult uh, in in the Turkish press. But uh, you know, I know, you know if you spend any time or any of us spend any time watching CNN, BBC, it's amazing for all you know, ministries and and certainly you know for tourism um, as as of course you're one of the biggest drivers. It's remarkable how much and you can say Ankara uh, is spending to push brand Turkey around the world. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that, you know, that's partly because you know, tourism is so important for the Turkish economy. It's about 12, 13% of GDP, um, and that's rising. And obviously, you know, it's become increasingly attractive for foreign tourists because of the fall of value in the lira. It's become a very sort of, you know, uh, budget holiday place. Um, but also, I think, you know, as much as, you know, Erdogan on the one hand, when he's, you know, at home, talking to the home crowd is very bombastic and very anti-Europe and you know, anti-Western. Actually, there's another side of him that also wants to be accepted in the world. You know, Turkey is very, very concerned about how it's perceived from the outside. You know, on a personal level, I'm asked all the time by Turks, you know, what do Brits think of us? What do you think of us? It's something that's quite interesting. So I think, you know, um, those are the reasons why Turkey is on such a drive to kind of promote a certain image of itself uh, to Europe and to the rest of the world. Hannah Lucinda Smith, our correspondent for us in Istanbul. Thanks very much for that. Marcus, just uh, before we go, it brings up an interesting point. I mean, consumers' consumers' minds can also be, you know, as we know, quite short. Uh, sunshine, beaches, uh, azure waters, uh, etc. You can have one view as well uh, of, of, of how you see Turkey politically. But actually, when it comes to improving your tan line, um, you still might be able to, of course, uh, yeah, I mean, vo- vote with your uh, hard-earned euros uh, to also then to f- find the cheapest flight to get you to Bodrum. Yeah, on the one hand. On the other hand, there's always one thing that many people forget. There's a halo effect. Certain characteristics of a brand always dominate the other one. And the more you put the gospel on the one characteristic that you really want to push forward, the more the other, the actual ones, are getting diminished by that major perception. And I think that's a smart move if Turkey really tries to build an image that is not so much related to the politics and really try to build themselves. I mean, 15% of, of, of GDP coming from tourism, Switzerland winter travel is just 5%. Then you see how much amount of money is responsible and how much is related so i think they're doing a pretty good job in branding turkey in a way that it might be a destination for good times and for bad times no absolutely and uh, juliet just maybe bringing it to full, full circle you're, you're you know it wasn't like the snowiest christmas but i think going back to uh you know certainly to, to what marcus is saying as well uh it hasn't sort of really damaged uh yeah the, the resorts i mean the resorts are absolutely rammed um and and a lot of people not skiing so do you think we're seeing a bit of a reset uh, as well as to how we just look at vacationing on one say you don't want to maybe fly all the way across the world for 12 hours to reach a sunny destination. I thought you were also going to ask me about how we're ignoring Italian politics in favor of Italy's beautiful tourism spots, which we've been doing forever, haven't we? Exactly. But yes, absolutely rammed. Everyone was saying that it's, you know, the post-COVID influx of everyone from all over the world. And everyone is just happy to be out there again. No, and and you you were certainly happy to be out there again as well. I was, I was. And to have good Italian food. I know you love the food in St. Moritz, but come on. Well, there's a lot lot of Italian as, no, there's a lot. There's a lot of Italian as, as well. Right? There are a lot of Italians, Italians, and, in and, Saint and, and a lot of and a lot of Italian uh, food. Just Marcus, I mean, your view. Do you think when we look at this warm winter that we're we're currently having? Of course, we know it could all change within five or six days, uh, and winter could be back with us. Uh, do nations, regions, uh, do they have a, a tough uh, task ahead of them, or do they just sort of stick to the knitting and promote coziness and everything else too? 
In the long term, I think we've got a huge challenge. In the short term, I think a lot of a lot of destinations, especially the winter destinations, are just trying to get on with it. And I think they're doing very good. If you're not too much into, if the slopes dominant, don't don't dominate your your experience, and you can do a lot of stuff like in Cortina, like in St. Moritz, then you're better off. If you go to Zermatt, which is pretty much about skiing and the magic of the mountain, then you might be getting into bigger trouble. We we'll have to leave it there. Juliet Lindy, Marcus Sugal, Andrew Tuck, also Emma Nelson in London. Thanks for joining us today. Also, Hannah Lucinda Smith in Istanbul. Our producers, Desiree Benley and Emma Nelson. Our studio manager, also Desiree Benley and Steph Chungu back in London. I'm Tyler Berlay. Back here next Sunday. Goodbye.